Today on Maine Calling, bringing to light the life and work of writer James Allen McPherson. Author and professor James Allen McPherson was the first black writer to win the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1978. He was also one of the first MacArthur Genius Fellows, and he was close to well-known authors like Ralph Ellison. But attention and acclaim didn't sit well with him, and he self-exiled to Iowa, where he taught generations of writers until his death in 2016. I'm Cindy Hahn. As a writer and a thinker, McPherson wrote about race and identity, but his central theme was our shared humanity as Americans. His philosophy reflected his background growing up in poverty in segregated Georgia, making his way through college and then Harvard Law School before dedicating his life to writing. A new book showcases the extraordinary words and thoughts of James Allen McPherson. Main Calling is coming right up. Maine Calling on Demand is made possible by Maine Seacoast Mission, strengthening Maine's coastal and island communities through education, health, and support. Learn more at seacoastmission.org. This is Maine Calling. I'm Cindy Hahn. The life of James Allen McPherson was remarkable in many ways. He was born in the segregated South in the 1940s, worked his way through Harvard Law School, and was the first black author to win the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. And he was also awarded a MacArthur Genius Fellowship. And yet he eluded the level of fame that usually comes with those accomplishments. Today we'll learn about McPherson's work as a writer and a thinker. My guest today is Anthony Walton. He's a poet and professor of English at, and writer-in-residence at Bowdoin College. His works include a chapbook of poems called Cricket Weather, and he wrote Mississippi and American Journey. He curated a new collection of James Allen McPherson's works. It's called On Becoming an American Writer, Essays and Nonfiction. Professor Walton, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. We invite you to join the conversation, share your comments and questions, email talk at mainpublic.org, post a comment on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or give us a call, 1-800-399-3566. And Professor Walton, let's start with some of the very fascinating life trajectory of James McPherson. He grew up in poverty, he was a black family living in the segregated South, ended up with the Pulitzer Prize and all these awards and writing notable books. Can you talk about those paths that he took and how he moved from one stage to the next in his life? Yes. Um, he was born in Savannah, Georgia in 1943. Um, that was kind of the depths of the Jim Crow period. And he was fortunate that his family had a very strong work ethic, but also he ran into some really wonderful teachers who recognized him and encouraged him. He was able to leave Savannah and get a scholarship to Morris Brown College, which was in Atlanta. That's an HBCU, historically black college university. And it's part of the Atlanta University complex that also includes schools like Morehouse and Stoneman. While he was there, 
he was able to kind of transform himself intellectually. He also, in the summers, began working on the trains as a porter and as a waiter. And this kind of opened up America to him. He worked in particular on the Great Northern Trail between Chicago and Seattle and saw parts of the country he had never seen before, began to meet different kinds of people. And that just kind of changed how he saw the world. And he was able to get from Morris Brown then to Harvard Law. And things accelerated from there. He began writing short stories, um, came to the notice in particular of Edward Weeks of Atlantic Monthly at that time. And they began to publish stories. So less than 10 years after he had left Savannah, he published a book of stories. And then five or six years after that, he received the Pulitzer Prize for his next book of stories. So it is quite a trajectory and quite an accomplishment. What is it that you think, I mean, he sort of got got that attention to his writing pretty quickly. What was it about McPherson's writing or his way of thinking that set him apart and led to the awards and the accolades that he got? Well, first of all, he was an extraordinary mind. He was a writer that was extremely original, extremely... Um, I want to say entertaining, but I don't mean it in a way that we normally might mean that. But his work just had everything. And he was a master of the short story form from the beginning of his uh, work as a story writer. Uh, uh, an interesting kind of aspect of his story writing is being a child in Savannah the books that the black children had access to were second and third hand uh, from the white schools and libraries. So they would get these books delivered to them and they had already been uh, used and often damaged. But McPherson, as a child and a teenager, always went through these books and one of the things that he did was he found a book of stories as a young person by Guy de Maupassant, the great French writer of short stories, who in some ways is one of the inventors of what we think of as a short story now. And so it's a kind of wonderful aspect of Kismet to think of McPherson finding this book as a young person and studying it and being led to what became his life's work. And that's also a kind of aspect of who he was as a person, which was using what he had and constantly moving forward based on what resources were available to him at each step. 
How did uh, you come to know the work of James Allen McPherson and then this new book that's coming out on becoming an American writer um, to from knowing his work to being the person selecting the essays that go that went into that. So tell us about not only you know how that came to be, but how you picked what went into the book. Well, I first became aware of him as a writer when I was in high school, just kind of vaguely heard his name and was aware that this new writer was out there. Then when I went to graduate school at Brown University, um, my friend and mentor, uh, the poet Michael S. Harper, kind of insisted that I studied McPherson very closely and gain a masterful understanding of his work, which at that time was um, mostly his short stories, though he had, had begun to do um, journalism and um, kind of these essayistic think pieces. So he was someone that I was always aware of and followed very closely. I never met him, but he was a writer who was always in my mind and who I was always thinking about very carefully. He began to shift his life, I think, I would say, from being principally a writer to being more principally a teacher when he worked at the Iowa Writers Workshop in particular. And he trained just legions of young writers who are now out there and are still talking about him and praising him. So I was aware that there was all this great work out there that had kind of faded into the distance or the past. And one day I was talking to my friend and colleague, Joshua Bodwell of Godin in Boston. And he was thinking about writers who had material that needed to be brought back. And so we were speculating about various things. And then he said, well, is there anyone that you are thinking about or think should be brought back? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, yes. <laughs> and we started talking about McPherson, and that's how this book began. Well, as a matter of fact, we have Josh Bodwell on the line, so let's, this is a good time to go to him. He's the editorial director at Godine, which is the publisher of the book of McPherson's work on becoming an American writer. Josh, thanks for calling. Oh, thanks for having me. So, Anthony just talked about uh, discovering or bringing to light McPherson's work. Why do you think it's important for people to either rediscover or discover his writings at this moment in time? Um, well, at this moment in time, one of the things Anthony and I always talk about is how uh, prescient he was, you know, that um, these are not um, brand new pieces written a year ago, but it's amazing when you're reading the book how relevant these pieces are today that that 
McPherson had some kind of crystal ball or, you know, more accurately to to Anthony's thing. He was just such a great mind. He was such a great thinker. Um, I think some of that Harvard law training is evident in these essays in terms of his uh, rhetorical skills. Mm-hmm. You know, an, an essay like Crab Cakes, where he's just moving you through his own thinking and these turns, and then he thinks he thinks something else, and he, he he solidifies that thinking and then moves to the next thing, and it's just he has a, a, an amazing mind. You know, he's he's beautiful at the sentence level, which is something I always knew about him as a short story writer, but I never really thought about him as an essayist until I asked Anthony that question. Um, and then it just sort of blew my mind and opened up this whole other um, cavern of, of his thinking. So, um, you know, I think my job as an editorial director, you know, sometimes it's, it's to know that I want to reissue something or to, to bring out a manuscript, but sometimes it's just that I don't know what I don't know. And I have to reach out to, you know, really smart people like Anthony and say, tell me what I don't know. <laughs> um, well, actually, let me ask you, why, why is Professor Anthony Walton the right fit to write the introduction to this book or to select these eth- essays and stories to tell who McPherson was? Um, well, part of it, I think you've personally experienced just in the lead up to the show that um, he doesn't do anything halfway. You know, <laughs> his preparation skills, his thoughtfulness, his earnestness, you know, this wasn't a matter of, of Anthony just, you know, looking back at some of that, you know, um, McPherson's essays that he'd read and liked and said, oh, I'll, you know, put those in. He just read everything. He not only reread what he'd already read, um, McPherson's daughter, Rachel, was a huge help in this and sent us both um, a big box of material. And Anthony just poured over that, you know, unpublished work. There's a great letter in the book that McPherson had written to a, a reader's um, club that he couldn't, a reader's group that he couldn't attend their meeting, but in, instead sent them this beautiful letter. So Anthony was a person because he was going to devour all of that deeply and seriously and then put it together very thoughtfully. You know, the, Rachel and I actually were just talking about how Anthony sequenced the pieces so it wasn't just, a, you know, first pick the pieces and why, and then also what you're doing for the reader as the book moves you through very uh, intentionally. And Rachel, McPherson's daughter, was saying, you know, I'm learning about my dad through him, huh. which well, we'll to be... me is, you know, the biggest compliment. <laughs> That's great because we actually will have Rachel uh, joining us momentarily so we get to hear what she did learn about her dad. Um, but real quick, Josh, just I understand Godine's going to try to bring to light other authors who have been overlooked, like McPherson. Mm. Yeah, so we have this great new um, sort of reimagined and relaunched um, an old um, series within the house called Godine Nonpareil. So it's, we've sort of refined it now to this idea that we're, we're bringing back these ex- essential works by exceptional authors, and they're introduced by contemporary voices with a deep connection to that author or that book. So in some cases, it's, it's like this, which is a new selection that's never appeared. Um, in the same season, we have a new um, collection of essays by Anne Beattie, her writing about writers and artists. It's the first collection of her nonfiction ever. 
And then we're also reissuing, you know, books that came out like Darkness by the um, Indian writer Bharati Mukherjee. That was just, you know, a gorgeous, gorgeous book that sort of, you know, Jampalahari before Jampalahari. Um, so one of those books that the audience now that would appreciate it, you know, wasn't alive maybe in 1980. So bringing that back. Um, this year we're bringing back Monica Wood's um, early book, Any Bitter Thing, with an introduction by Kathy Pelletier. That's on the main list. Um, also, um, Andre Debus's first novel and only novel introduced by his son, Andre Debus III. Um, we're bringing back, um, God, so much. Yeah, <laughs> so that much. sounds yeah. like a, a, a great series. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Josh. Josh Bodwell is the editorial director at Godine. And it is time for a quick break. We are talking about the work of author James Allen McPherson. Call 1-800-399-3566. We're uh, going to be right back. This is Main Calling. Welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Cindy Hahn. Today on the show, poet, Bowdoin College professor, and writer-in-residence Anthony Walton is with us to talk about the life and legacy of James Allen McPherson. Anthony wrote the introduction for and curated the new book of McPherson's work on becoming an American writer. Share your comments and questions. Email talk at mainpublic.org. Comment on our Facebook page or on Twitter or Instagram, or give us a call, 1-800-399-3566. And on the line with us now is Rachel McPherson. She is the daughter of James McPherson. Rachel, thanks so much for giving us a call. No, thank you. Hello. Hi. So I read the whole collection, and it's just wonderful. And there's one uh, chapter, one story in particular, that's focused on you called Disneyland. And it's just overflowing with his love for you. Uh, you were young at the time, a kid. And it describes how he tried to make sure that your childhood was just infused with magic and imagination. Um, how do you remember that period of, of your life? Oh, boy, exactly that. Um, I mean, it was such that magic almost became a religion for me, my, um, it was, I, I can't ever sell this house in Iowa city because I still believe that there is literal magic here. He created, he had a, I remember he had a toy tree outside for me every night. He told me mother nature brought it. Um, and every night, a, a item of dollhouse furniture would appear and I, I would write mother nature, uh, letters and then put them under my pillow and the next day the letter would be gone and um, a leaf would be there instead. Uh, uh, Santa Claus I believed in until I was 13. It was a little embarrassing <laughs> but not if you understood my dad and the lengths he went to. to uh, I mean he, he created, he had printing presses do letters from Santa Claus. Uh, Santa Claus and Associates Incorporate, the North Pole, Planet Earth, uh, <laughs> and have friends, because he knew I'd recognize the handwriting, and have friends uh, write the letters other years or sign the letters. And um, it was, uh, it, it, but for him, what that was, and I mean, I think that's reflected in Disneyland, was a sense of uh, possibility, hope, um, with, with imagination and magic, uh, which is, yeah, a word I, I made sure was on his, his tombstone, the word imagination. Oh, what does it say? Oh, the quote, uh, it's a quote from one of his short stories, uh, Just Not for the City. And he said, I think love must be the ability to suspend one's intelligence for the sake of something. 
At the basis of love, therefore, must live imagination. Wow, that's perfect. Uh, the Iowa Writers Workshop, where your father taught for decades, issued a, a statement or a piece of writing when he passed away in 2016. And it described him not only as a great writer and a teacher, but as humble and gentle and compassionate and nurturing. Are those the traits that stand out to you about your father? Um, or how would you describe him? Oh, boy. Yes. Oh, compassionate and and so humble, so generous. So he never turned away anyone who needed work uh, from his house. And um, I remember one time, there was a, a, a white man uh, and his son who came and my dad was very trusting. Anyway, he, he went out to the store and when he came back, all of the stereo equipment had been stolen. And when I found out, I was, I was really upset that someone had taken advantage of him in this way. And he said, Oh no, no, Rachel, that's, that's not the tragedy here. It's just think about how that man had to steal in, in front of his son. And it's, and he, it's, it's nothing, the, the, the equipment that's replaceable, but he, his heart, he had compassion for the father in, in that case. And um, just every Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, he could out talk them. Everyone was a friend <laughs> who came to the door. We have, I have like six vacuums in the, the basement because any vacuum cleaner salesman who came, he would buy one. He just, uh, <laughs> he saw the dignity in everyone. And, um, and I, he would, he would put, he would bring quarters around and then feed people's meters so they wouldn't get tickets. He just, it was, it was also kind of time consuming. So I think that is one reason. Um, it was very time consuming actually. And then the dedication to his students. Um, I, I just, um, just piles and piles of manuscripts constantly. He would, he would keep every copy of their, the, the workshop stories, every, the manuscripts every week. Uh, once he saw some in the recycling bin and he couldn't stand seeing his students work in the recycling bin discarded. So he fished them out and saved them as well. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, it's notable that your father achieved so much in his lifetime and had so much influence on other people, yet he is not as well known to the general public. Is that because he didn't want the fame and glory? Uh, and do you wish he could have been better known and appreciated? I... I do now. I do now wish he could have been better known and appreciated because because his work is powerful. It's profound. It's prescient. It's important. Um, and I think Anthony really helped me see this. Um, I, I wasn't as familiar with the, the nonfiction in part because it is it is complex. And I, I almost needed a, a teacher to, to, to guide me through it. And so it was sad to read it because he, he wasn't around to help me understand it. But it but what Anthony has done is woven together uh, just all the talks that my dad would have with me to help me understand. Um, I, I think um, at the time, you know, I didn't, he was so, he was not afraid of the limelight, but he just didn't, it didn't matter to him so much. He, he wanted to be the best possible teacher he could be. And that involved being in Iowa city and putting his head to the manuscripts and for for uh, national book awards and whiting endowments all this um and that was that was his work I, I feel sad for him in that i know he very much wanted to write a book on the 14th amendment and was towards the end of his life but never he 
things got overwhelmed, and I don't think he ever got to put the time into that book. He did have a, a draft, but unfortunately there was a fire, and it's oh. gone. Oh, God. Rachel, stay with us uh, for longer on the line. Um, I know I wanted to weigh in and I just mentioned. Sure. Well, I think, uh, first of all, his devotion to his students, I think one of the things that was powering that was his understanding of how fortunate he himself had been mm. with yeah. other teachers as he was growing up. Uh, he mentions it several times in his writing, the power of the intervention of a teacher to encourage a student. Mm -hmm. And in his case, he had a number of people who helped him find inflection points that led to his growth as both a writer and a person. I think that that's just um, became part of him and it was a way in his mind of returning what had been given to him. Well, mm -hmm. um, Anthony, the whole idea of him going off to be a teacher is so tied to what he called, he called it self-exile. He sort of left the, the whole scene um, of being a writer, getting all these awards and, and kind of hid out in Iowa and just focused on teaching. And that's a big reason why he's not more famous or well, more well, more well known. So um, can you talk about, you know, this idea of his choice? Um, was it just because he didn't, he wasn't a recluse, he wasn't trying to run away from people, but um, what was it that he wanted to get away from? Well, I think that that's a complex question that has several answers. A couple of them would be, first of all, I think he had some bad experiences at the University of Virginia. Um, you know, we forget now, but Virginia was the South 30 years ago, and there was uh, jealousy and even mistreatment of him that I think soured him in certain ways. And he was such a gentle, kind soul. We can only imagine how wounding that mistreatment was. I think also he is an example of kind of the old school in writers where you do your work, your work goes into the world, and it kind of speaks for itself during his career was when this more celebrity driven literary world began to create itself and i think that that just did not suit him personally or as a personality and i think that as rachel has alluded to already i think he was a southerner he was a Southern black man, he reminds me of several of my uncles, for example, who just kind of like being in the neighborhood. They like being friends mm -hmm. with people. They like hanging out and being of service. Um, he was a reliable neighbor as well as a wonderful teacher. I mean, mm -hmm. he was so regarded in Iowa City that a public park has now been named after him. 
Oh, Rachel, and, you you were part of that, right? Honor than that. That's great. Mm -hmm. um, Rachel, is that does that resonate with you as well? Just that his choice was to maybe live a simpler, quieter life. Absolutely, he called it neighboring, and it was vital to his existence. He he believed in the human spirit and community above above all. Um, if he had a philosophy, that would that would be it. And so to have a public park named after him where, for, where people of all types, uh, vacuum cleaner salesmen, Jehovah witnesses, and everyone could, could come together would be, um, I, I think his greatest legacy. Um, I'm, I mean, he would say that I, I still would like him to be better known, but, but uh, <laughs> yeah, anyway, I, uh, yeah, neighboring. In fact, he talked about it so often, um, I, it's also on his, his tombstone, the, a, a Japanese kanji called Kazuna that represents the ties, bond, connection between, between neighbors. Um, uh, yeah, anyway. I love, I love that neighboring. That's, that's great. Um, I just wanted to ask you one more question before we let you go. Do you have any favorite work or story that your dad wrote? Uh, I, I do. I I love Gold Coast, a short story from Hue and Cry. Um, and that's in part because I, I like Hue and Cry stories, especially because you see the job. He had so many different jobs over the years. And so I, I knew I could see him in his character so clearly. Um, and, and anyway, that was that was wonderful. And the humor, the sense of humor that was in uh, John Updike's 100 uh best short stories of the century. And I, I believe it deserves to be there. And then I love a solo song for Doc because my dad loved folk and vernacular and he would always talk about this. And so I see it so clearly. And of course, his job right, um, working as a dining car waiter on the, on the Great Northern Railroad was in, uh, influenced that story very much. And on trains, the story just before that, both of them are from, I mean, all of them are from the collection Hue and Cry. Well, that's great to hear from you. Thank you so much for calling into the show, Rachel. Thank you for having Rachel, me. Yeah. Sure. Rachel McPherson is a Shakespeare ESL teacher in Iowa and the daughter of James Allen McPherson. Um, Anthony, we haven't had a chance yet to talk um, more about really a major aspect of, of McPherson's work is the sort of philosophy as he espouses about things like race and identity, um, which is you and Josh both mentioned that um, a lot of what he wrote is so relevant today. And the, the part that stood out for me in reading his work is he repeatedly comes back to the idea that what matters is that we focus on being humans and on our morals and on fairness and that discussions about race um, can be too narrowly defined by race. Um, I don't, I'm not going to articulate it as well as you could, but he was really in favor of um, not being colorblind, you know, recognizing each other's race, but still understanding that that's just one thing that people are defined by and that we should look at each other as human beings. Is that, did I get it right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. And I, I think that that's one of the things he brings to the discussion that is interesting, original, unique. Uh, Josh mentioned his thinking around the 14th amendment and I think that this is crucial to understanding Nick Pearson. He talks about it in these essays, but it looms ever larger in 
all of his work, whether specifically or more obliquely. And that is the idea which embody, is embodied in the 14th Amendment of two things, due process and equal treatment before the law. Uh, James felt that if we could hold fidelity to those two ideas as they are stated in the 14th Amendment, that became a way forward in the United States because in his view, it became a way to get beyond race in these discussions because it's very simple. He's insisting that every single human being be given due process and be treated equally before the law. And that is simple, but it's also huge because it starts to call in all kinds of aspects of our society, including the education system, for example, housing rights, all of these kinds of things. But if we can come back to that 14th Amendment, one of the three big amendments after the Civil War, then that becomes a way of reimagining our society. And it becomes a way of lessening the salience of race. And yes, there was no person, I would say, more African-American than James Allen McPherson. He loved being an African-American. He loved African-American culture, language, all these things. Everywhere you look in his work, you see that. But he also felt that as Americans, if we could not get past race and the conflicts that it generates over and over again in our society, and this is part of what we mean when we say his work speaks to today, if we can't get past these conflicts, then things are not looking too well for the future. Well, thanks for articulating that. We are talking about author James Allen McPherson, his life, his writings, his legacy. Call 1-800-399-3566. We're going to take another quick break. This is Maine Calling. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Cindy Hahn, and you're listening to Maine Calling. Today, we're talking about the writing and legacy of James Allen McPherson. My guest is Anthony Walton, who's a professor and writer-in-residence at Bowdoin College. He selected the works in a new collection of McPherson's essays and nonfiction. He also wrote the introduction for the book, which is called On Becoming an American Writer. Join our conversation. Call 1-800-399-3566. Send a brief email to talk at mainpublic.org. Tweet at Maine Calling or post to our Facebook page or to Instagram. And Anthony, we were just talking about um, McPherson's view on race and fairness in America. Um, I read in one, of, in, in one of the essays in the book, he wrote about how in the 1970s and 80s, black Americans started turning toward wanting what they saw as the goal, which was framed by white Americans, sort of the trappings of middle-class life and maybe the materialism and that he felt like people were going astray in what they were focusing on, that they were um, letting what the goals for their lives be determined by white society. 
Um, and I thought what really stuck with, with me was the metaphor he used for that in the story of um, being at a cafe and there's uh, two acquaintances, one's black, one's white. And uh, he described how the white um, friend was pointing when he talked. He continuously kept using his finger to point as he talked and the black friend's eyes would go where he was pointing. So he used this metaphor repeatedly in that section about the white finger telling blacks what it is they want and what it is they count as success. So I don't know if you could comment on that because I that, that image really stuck with me. I think that there's another piece of that to add as well. And this is the sort of just kind of profound insight that James brought to these discussions. But another piece of that he talks about is how as African-Americans were moving into that white middle class or trying to assume those sorts of values, white Americans were moving away from that. And we saw that in the 60s and the baby boomers and the sorts of um, large societal changes. So he was very concerned that African-Americans were kind of moving into something that wasn't even there anymore. And we're also turning from the best parts of their own uh, past and culture. Um, for example, the culture that had created him. And he thought that that was being um, let go of too easy and too, too easily and too quickly. And he was very concerned that it was going to lead to um, a kind of desolation in the black community that um, would be hard to repair. And if I can add one more thing, I think we do see some of what he was talking about in, for example, a figure like Kanye West, who has in many ways lost his way, I think, and who kind of fall, fell into a kind of empty materialism and, and a kind of abandonment of, again, the very things that created him. And James was aware of this very early and wrote a lot about it and thought a lot about it. What do you think he would think of the emphasis today uh, as we all know, uh, racial justice and a lot of the the movement that's been happening in this country has driven a lot of conversations to be about race. So what do you think McPherson's take on that would be on, on where we are now? I think he would say it's inevitable and that until there is some kind of resolution or true justice, that this is just going to be a cycle that keeps going around and around and around and around. 
Um, this is again where this idea of the 14th Amendment and what's embodied there as a potential way forward in American society. Because that was one of the things that he, it meant so much to him, as Rachel alluded to in her comments, trying to find a way forward from the uh, experiences that we as a nation have literally suffered from again and again and again and trying to find some new ways of thinking about these things. That's one of the most uh, impressive things to me about uh, James's accomplishment as a writer is he was looking for how might we rethink where we are and the job that we need to do? How might we get out of the cliches of the past and the arguments? And also, he was not what we would call a triumphalist thinker. He loved Martin Luther King, was deeply affected by King's thinking and King's role in our society. But he also, even back then, said, this isn't enough. This isn't working. And so he was trying to articulate in his thinking the next step. So he even and, wrote about King's focus on poverty and said, well, what if yes. he had thrown himself into that and been focused on fairness to all people um, yes. and turned the conversation not so much narrowly on race, that that would have made uh, a bigger difference? Yes, not just race, though. And I don't want to minimize uh, McPherson's concern about race. He mm -hmm. was deeply embedded in both an understanding and a pride about being African-American. And part of what he was worried about, as I talked about a few moments ago, was African-Americans losing touch with all of the wonderful things that we had that we had done and that were part of our culture. Um, for example, his pride in that black culture that had been excluded by Jim Crow. There were millions of wonderful, accomplished, loving Americans who had been put to the side by Jim Crow. And he did not want African-Americans to look to lose touch with that. He also did not want us to forget the people who had held faith. The, if you think about the people who got off the slave ships, for example, Sullivan Island in South Carolina, if you think about the faith that they held for their descendants and how they kept going, James writes about this. He did not want African-Americans to lose touch with that. And so one of the things he wrote about, and this in particular is in the last essay in the book, uh, which is the title essay, was 
being who he was, holding to his culture while also moving forward into the next America and looking for paths that would allow us to do that. And without running off here, that's where the 14th Amendment and some of his other thinking starts to come in. Fairness, due process. Right. So he was he was so philosophical, and a lot of the essays in the book reflect that. Um, but there's an interesting few uh, unexpected ones. There's his essay about Richard Pryor. Tell us why, um, what what he felt about Richard Pryor, who at the time was still just becoming famous, um, and why he wrote about him. Well, I think that he saw Richard Pryor as a great artist. One of the things that we forget about Pryor is how great he was. We he's Pryor has in many ways become subsumed by celebrity culture. And I think often we think of him more as the kind of trouble he got into, the things that he suffered because of his drug habit, things like that. And we forget what a genius he was. Something that James saw in Pryor, and again, this aligns with what I was just saying about uh, what we might call African-Americanism or something. Pryor saw the beauty and tragedy, the profundity of the folk black culture, and often used characters from that in his work. The irony and part of the difficulty of uh, Pryor's work is that many African-Americans wanted to forget these characters. You know, the um, street bum or the person from deep rural Black South, people like that, hustlers. Pryor saw the humanity of those people and wanted to use them and show them. Also, white Americans were often afraid of those people. So you had these groups moving away from what Pryor was working with as material, wanting to ignore it. And James wanted to point to it and say, that is also America. And that's part of the title of the book, because ultimately McPherson wants to say this is all America. And he was proudly African-American, but he was also deeply American. And Richard Pryor is another example of that. Um, another essay is about um, the Japanese word ukiyo um which can loosely be translated i guess it's floating or fleeting um and he he spent many years in japan so can you talk briefly about first of all why he why he went to japan whether he was you know trying to get away from america but also what was about that idea that japanese idea of floating and fleetingness that appealed to him well i think i don't think he went to Japan to get away from America. I think that that was more just pursuing yet another of these profound interests that he had. He was very interested in Japanese culture aesthetically and 
um, just kind of as a very rigorous uh, social construct. This idea of the floating world, it meant a great deal to him because as he writes in that essay, he didn't have a hometown in the sense that Savannah was not enough for him and was something he had to get away from. Instead, he built this Yukio, this floating world of friends from all over the world, all over the United States, all kinds of different people. And they became his hometown, this floating world, which could come together in any number of permutations. And then they would dissipate, but they were always out there together for each other. So, yeah, that theme of home and where is home, he also wrote about quite a bit, which is quite interesting. Um, just in the last minute or so that we have left, Anthony, let's hear a little bit about you and what you're working on um, next with your work. Uh, well, I'm working on a book of essays, which I'm hoping will come out about this time next year. It's humorous because having worked so deeply with James's essays, it kind of means I have to bring it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Pressure's on. But, yes. But also I have a, a couple of books of poems that I hope to bring out in the next two or three years. So I've well, got a lot. And I hope to bring more of James's work into the world. That's wonderful. I have to ask you, has you, you kind of alluded to it, has, his writing has influenced yours then. Yes, very much so. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Anthony Walton is a poet and professor of English and writer-in-residence at Bowdoin College. He wrote the introduction for and curated On Becoming an American Writer, showcasing the work of writer James Allen McPherson. Today's sound engineer was K.G. Akinmaladun. Visit maincalling.org to find our past shows and to subscribe to Maine Calling's weekly newsletter. Tomorrow on the program, President Jimmy Carter's life of public service and his impact on the people of Maine. I'm Cindy Hahn, and you've been listening to Maine Calling on Maine Public Radio.